Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Welcome to the show, friends and neighbors. Thanks for dropping by. Join us on a journey. We are based in Atlanta, Georgia, here in the United States. But today our adventures take us to the northwestern Pacific Ocean, to a place that was formerly known as the territory of Guam. Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, my name is Mel. So we're going on a bit of a tropical vacay today. We are, we are. And I have wanted to travel to this area of the Pacific Ocean for such a very, very long time. Our uh, longtime friend of the show and co-worker, Scott Benjamin, is actually a very well-traveled man. He's, get this, Noel, he's been to Bora Bora. I know, man. I, I, I didn't even think. I thought that was like an imaginary land. <laughs> and, and, and then you come to find out Scott Benjamin, or as I like to call him, F. Scott Benjamin, has been there. Yes, yes, F. Scott Benjamin. So... Today, we're exploring a true tale that still feels as surreal as a, a story by Kurt Vonnegut or something. You it know? does. That's a really good connection, Ben, because it's got all of the pathos and setup for a grand, you know, battle of epic proportions, a naval battle, you know, at sea with cannons and all that good stuff that goes along with it. But there's a twist, and, and, and the twist is sort of a very Vonnegutian <laughs> uh, Vonnegut-esque? Yeah, in that, you know, not much happens. <laughs> right. I don't think that's fair. I'm, I don't mean to pin, like, to say nothing happens in Vonnegut books. I just mean it subverts your expectations a little bit. Let's say that. Yeah, it feels in a very relieving way somewhat anticlimactic. And we're, of course, not going on this journey alone, folks. We're bringing along, in our opinion, one of the best parts of this show, super producer Casey Pegram. May he be our spirit guide on this journey today. Yes, and hopefully our navigator as well, because I don't remember if we packed a GPS. I am garbage with directions, as you know. <laughs> well, we we already know where we're going, and let's travel there through the magic of podcasting. But first, we have to get to Guam 
by way of Cuba, because to paint the scene, we need to talk about something called the Spanish-American War. The Spanish-American War, declared on April 25th of 1898. You see, uh, the U.S. was doing a lot of business with Cuba. Mm -hmm. And Cuba wanted to become independent from Spain, which was controlling it at the time. It's very true. And there were rebels. There was an uprising in Cuba, um, and they wanted to separate themselves from Spanish rule. And the U.S. had some pretty significant interests in helping them accomplish this because they were doing trade upwards of $100 million a year with Cuba, one of those goods, the primary good in this equation, being sugar. And that's uh, in 1895. Terms. Yeah. So it's a huge amount of money. Shall we inflation calculator it, my friend? Yes. Uh, this is an appropriate enough amount of money that we may want a drum roll, Casey. $100 million in 1895 is equivalent to $2.75 billion in t- as of 2017. That's like an economy of scale. <laughs> It's massive. There's really no there's really no way someone in the US could argue against protecting this valuable trade. And the US public was behind this as well. They were supporting American intervention because people were checking out the newspapers of note at the time. The right. yellow papers. <laughs> right. Right. Of the like the William Randolph Hearst era of the yellow journalism where it was mm-hmm. kind of this uh alarmist or maybe not alarmist, but more um, sensationalized coverage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sensationalized uh, by muckrakers, by people with a strategic axe to grind. Spain was taking incredibly brutal measures to repress the rebellion. And the U.S. public learned about this through graphic depictions in these newspapers. And this caused American sympathy for the Cuban rebels to rise. As we know, the best way to get a war going is not to say it's in our economic interest. It's to say we are doing a noble thing. Humanitarian reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you heard of this guy, General Weiler the Butcher? Lay it on me. This is nuts. I did not know this was a thing. But this gentleman was sent to deal with, by, by Spain, to deal with the Cuban rebels. And he actually rounded them up and put them in concentration camps. Um, they weren't, you know, gassed like the, the Jews were during the Nazi regime. But they were left in horribly unsanitary conditions to starve and just wither away. And so, you know, that was happening. And this was being reported. And so there was strong sentiment for or the humanitarian aid angle there. And tensions are rising. Tensions are escalating. At this point, let's say around the early part of the year, right, uh, the American public is largely behind uh, or supportive of an intervention, but there are people still on the fence, and that all changes in less than a few days. Yeah. In fact, with the permission of the Spanish government, um, President McKinley ordered a battleship, the USS Maine, to hang out in the Havana Harbor to kind of safeguard American interests during this time of upheaval in Cuba. And on February 15th in the evening, an explosion sank that ship, killing 264 sailors and two officers. And this was a problem. This was bad, what they call bad optics, Ben. 
Right. So the Maine's destruction did not immediately launch a war with Spain, but it uh, pretty much guaranteed that there would not be an easy, peaceful resolution to this conflict. It's like the Pearl Harbor kind of moment, you know? I mean, it's not it's not quite as extreme, obviously, because there was no direct proof. But it is that powder keg moment where the public really sees, oh, there's a threat here. They got our guys, right? And that those yellow journalists we talked about really pushed that line, didn't they? Like yeah. saying, oh, they blamed Spain, even though there wasn't any proof that that was actually what happened. But it seems likely that that's what happened. It was one of the biggest political, if not the biggest political issue of that year. Let's fast forward a couple of months. Spain realizes that the the water is slowly boiling, the flames are rising, and they attempt to quell things. They announce an armistice on April 9th of that year, and they speed up a program to grant Cuba limited autonomy, limited powers of government. So this would mean that Cuba is still a part of the larger Spanish empire, but they have some latitude and agency with local decisions. And I'd read in a few places that there was a sentiment that they weren't really that serious about doing those things that they said. Right. It was all sort of for show. It's either disingenuous or it's too little, too late. Because uh, very shortly afterwards, the U.S. Congress issued resolutions declaring Cuba's right to full independence, demanding the withdrawal of all of Spain's armed forces and authorizing then-President William McKinley to use force to secure the withdrawal of the Spanish forces and at the same time to make sure that everyone knows they're the good guys, I guess, in this situation. The U.S. also says, we're not going to annex Cuba. We want it to be its own thing. We're sticking up for you. And, you know, they gave the uh, the British two-finger salute to Spain. This was Congress doing this, right? Yeah. And I think the president had requested sort of a lighter version of that. And then Congress sort of doubled down and said, nah, we're going to really go, you know, ham on this. Yeah, they went hard on the paint for sure. And Spain, in a game of uh, geopolitical double dare, said, oh, you know what? You're going to dare us to get out? Well, double dare. We're declaring war on the U.S. on April 24th. And on the 25th, the next day, the U.S. said, oh, yeah, well, you too, buddy. You can't declare war on us. We're declaring war on you. It's super confusing because the way it's written, um, the way I've seen the chronology of this is that they had to retroactively backdate it to April 21st, which I believe was when the U.S. established a military blockade Mm -hmm. of uh, Cuba to – protect their interests, more or less. Again, and that's not like the official reason. Again, we're, they're going with this humanitarian thing. Sure, oh, oh, yeah. the poor Cuban people, you know, the, the, the Spanish are just mistreating them so badly, you know, because America, you know, we're all about taking care of people, right? That's what yeah. we do. Yeah. And maybe we, uh, maybe we, or at least the, the American leaders at the time, maybe they really did believe that they were doing a noble, altruistic thing. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm being flip. But it's just, it's hard to, it's hard Man, it's yeah. hard to, to have that kind of faith in the goodness of our leaders. It would be somewhat anomalous. Uh, and it was not going to be a fair fight because Spain was not prepared in naval or military terms to have a war in a foreign part of the planet with the U.S., Mm-mm. who is not, you know— uh, Nothing to sneeze at militarily, even back then. And, I mean, we're talking Spain in general, not to mention our little whippersnapper buddies there in Guam. 
<laughs> yes. So we've set the stage, and the Spanish-American War quickly expands beyond the bounds of Cuba and the surrounding waters. One of the huge theaters for the Spanish-American War was going to be the Pacific Ocean, specifically the Philippines. The Philippines at the time were under Spanish control and had been for hundreds of years. The U.S., again, uh, was going to clean up this this massive injustice for everyone who can't see uh, can't see us in the studios. I just did a a, a, a hard arm shake, kind of a aw shucks. Yeah, you know. Hey, there we go. Like you might have done at Opryland when you were a boy. Oh man, you're never gonna let me live that one down. I, why should I, man? It's a delight. <laughs> but uh, speaking of delights. When we consider the Pacific theater at the time, or just when we consider the geography of the Pacific, we have to realize these folks did not have very fast means of communication. And a lot of these islands and archipelagos were so isolated that they could learn about events in the rest of the world months after, maybe even a, a more than a year. And so <laughs> this is when... Uh, we, this is when we come to a captain, a captain named Glass. Captain Glass. Which is a cool name. Very cool name. And, uh, and Noel, what is, what is Captain Glass doing on his way to the Philippines? Well, Captain Glass actually received sealed orders, um, and, and they, they went a little bit like this. In fact, exactly like this. (laughs) Dear sir, actually, it didn't say dear. They wouldn't have been that polite in the military. Just says Sir. Changes the whole tone, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Upon receipt of this order, which is forwarded by the steamship City of Peking, uh, which was the name of the ship, uh, to you at Honolulu, a place, (laughs) you will proceed with the Charleston and the City of Peking in company to Manila, Philippine Islands. On your way, and here's the important part, you are hereby directed to stop at the Spanish island of Guam. You will use such force as may be necessary to capture the port of Guam, making prisoners of the governor and other officials and any armed force that may be there. You will destroy any fortification on said island and any Spanish naval vessels that may be there or in the immediate vicinity. Um, And then it goes on to say, this will probably only take you two days because they definitely don't know we're coming. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's we cannot emphasize that enough, but we will attempt to through repetition. They were definitely not prepared on the island of Guam, the Spanish uh, governing structure. So Guam had their first contact with the Spanish Empire when a fellow named Ferdinand Magellan, the famous Portuguese explorer, landed uh, there on March 6, 1521. And in the intervening centuries, Spain also controlled Guam. Right. As well as, you know, as well as the Philippines. But Guam was on the edge of the empire, uh, for lack of a better phrase. It wasn't, and it still is not, a very large place, uh, geographically speaking. And it also wasn't at the heart of a lot of conflict Mm. or a ton of trade. Exactly. In fact, at the time, the Guam infantry consisted of only 55 soldiers and two That's two lieutenants. So Glass has these orders to capture Guam. He is assured that it is going to be super easy because they're so unprepared. Oh, yeah. I mean, they – the way – the matter-of-fact nature of that order, the way it's written, it's just like this is going to be – Mm-hmm. cake. It's it's on the same level tonally as, hey, will you pick up some milk on, on your way, way home? On, on the, the way, way home. home. Literally, yes. And, and so the Charleston enters Agana Bay 
on the 20th of June, and they were prepared for a cannonade from Fort Santiago, the Spanish fort there. And so Captain Glass got further into the harbor, and he began bombarding Fort Santa Cruz, but received no response. Because you see, folks, the fort had long been abandoned. Right. No one cared. No, no one, one was cared. home. No one knew. No one was looking. Except people were looking. And this is where I kind of want to shift the perspective here to, I think, our mutual favorite character in this story. A guy by the name of Francisco Portisash. Yeah. Or you could, you could call him Frank if you want to be familiar. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He has uh, – we, we have an original source from – a letter that he writes recounting his experience. He was a naturalized citizen in the U.S., and on the morning of the 22nd of June in 1898, his brother, Don Jose, woke him up and said, you got to come see this. You got to come check this out. And just a little backstory. I'm like, why was this guy on uh, Guam? What was he mm-hmm. doing? It looks like he had had a career as kind of like as a whaler. He, he, he seemed like a real man about town, had done some interesting stuff and like wanted to see the world. But mm-hmm. he was from Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he uh, he was a U.S. citizen. He did have whaling background. And in Guam, he was pretty influential because he ran a general store. A general store, and he was apparently the only American on the island, which probably earned him some some street cred, I guess. He seems like he was beloved and had uh, support from the community. He wasn't like some kind of outcast. Mm-hmm. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. 
Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So, in, in his letter, the way he recounts it, he had maybe heard of something about a conflict between Spain and the U.S. In fact, his his brother is the one who hipped him to it, but his brother was a little wishy-washy about it too. His brother also, by the way, was just visiting from Europe. He had come there by way of the Philippines and was just hanging out. So I I think it's probably pretty accurate when you see um, this guy, Francisco, being described as the only American, naturalized Mm -hmm. American citizen on the island who lived there. Uh, So his brother says, come to the beach and see those ships there and where they come from. And... Frank, as I'm going to call him, uh, started with him around daylight. They went to uh, they went to the shore close enough to look through a pair of glasses, which are probably binoculars, and he recognized two of the steamships, China and Australia, and he wasn't sure what the other one was. But at this point, his brother said— He said, do not say anything as I think war is declared between the United States and Spain. If so, I will go on board and take with me the Spanish officers in one of your boats, and you can go on your whale boat afterwards. Because that's another thing that's important about the story. Frank, you see, had— like a, like a mini fleet of ships, and they call them lighters, yeah. which were these specialized boats that you would use to transport goods um, to bigger ships. Right, that couldn't get close enough to shore or right. maybe didn't have a port they could pull in. Yeah, so— How do you think the yeah. brother knew the war thing, though? It seems like they were not hip to this on the island. Was he just kind of conjecturing? Because he had traveled from Europe. Uh-huh. He didn't think to mention this earlier? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a laid-back uh, yeah. laid guy they're painting here, but— Uh, As they arrive, they see the Charleston begin to shell this fort, as Mm -hmm. we had mentioned, and there's no response because as Frank and everybody else on the island knows, that fort has been abandoned for years, and they believe the ship, the man of war, is saluting the fort of Santa Cruz, and so on the island side— They say, okay, well, let's get somebody together. Let's get the artillery together, and we'll send a salute too. And this this sounds weird for a lot of people, the idea of a salute. What is that? Why are you you just firing a gun to say hello to people? I mean, there's the whole 21-gun salute. It it always strikes me as queer. I mean, anytime people shoot guns in a celebratory manner, that always is a little strange to me. Right. So we can give you a little bit of background on what a salute actually is is and and why it exists. This comes to us uh, through the official blog of the U.S. Navy named Navy Live. And uh, Tim Comerford is writing about the history of the salute in Salutations with a Bang, the military salute. The idea here, according to him, is that the the origins of this practice run clear, but we have some good estimates about this and they date back to some ancient warfare. It's intended to show deference on the part of the person saluting to the person being saluted. And it's also supposed to indicate that the person or the people who are saluting are unarmed or somehow defenseless because in the old days of raising your hand to salute, you were showing that you didn't have a sword, didn't have like a... But Ben, they're they're saluting with live ammunition. The cannon, yeah, how, yeah. How does this? How does this work? Great question. The cannons, once you fire them in a salute, they take a while to reload, and so the idea is 
Uh-huh. In a salute, the idea is they're shooting not to not to hit anyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to say like, okay, boom, there you go. Now you know we're not carrying loaded cannons. Uh, but this was clearly a mistake on the Islanders' side because they were trying to shell the fort. I mean, that would have interpreted it as a piss-poor salute. I'm <laughs> like, come on. You're supposed to, like, aim away from us or up in the air or something. But no, they were definitely trying to shell that fort. Um, but that misunderstanding did happen. And so uh, a sort of envoy was gathered to row out to the ship, the man of war Yeah. This floating murder machine, uh huh, and say hello. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, but I, I almost I kept picturing you know the scenes where they send a landing party in Star Trek or something. So Frank arrives. He he gets on the ship, and uh, they find out that he is an American citizen. And how does he end up going along? Like, he, he's already there watching, and he has, like, because I know there were some actual officials that went as well, because there was the the commander of the Guam uh, Navy, who is a guy named Don Pedro Duerte, and mm-hmm. he is the one who said, oh, they're saluting us. We should go. Should we, dang it. We don't have, we're, we're all, we're fresh out of gunpowder, so <laughs> we better go, you know, be polite. Everybody get your own guns if you have them. Right. And we'll try to organize this. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were trying to be cool. They thought they were showing customary um, deference or the rules of engagement. And to paint the picture here, imagine a really small town where not a lot of big stuff happens. Everybody in town is who, who has heard about this is coming out to check out the scene. They want to see what happens. So this is not like a situation where there would be a group of battle-hardened veterans preparing to die. Oh, I know, yeah. This is someone saying like, oh, hey, Tim, did you hear? There's, there are big ships out there. And the other guy going, oh, no way. And like, yeah, they said we got to um, bring our guns to salute him. And he's like, oh, uh, yeah, all right. got to say, though, this brother, this Don Jose Portisash, uh-huh. yeah. seems like a real piece of work. I mean, he is, you know— hasn't clued anyone in to the fact that there may be war going on. I think he's trying to play it. Like he's trying to, you know, save his own butt because he is the one who assembles this group of officials, military Mm -hmm. officials, which, um, so the party that went out there to meet the boat were uh, Frank, his brother, Lieutenant Commander of the Navy and Captain of the Port, Don Francisco Gutierrez, a naval surgeon, Don Jose Romero, Captain Pedro Duade uh, Anducar, who was uh, part of the Marine Corps, and also Don Jose Sixto, who was the civil paymaster. Um, And they all are kind of roped into doing this by the brother, who still doesn't clue them into the fact that this could be a problem. Well, he told his brother, he was like, Frank... Be cool, but I think there's a war going on. So what it does strike me is he's looking out for him and his brother's best interests and not the native people true, of, of the land. True, important point. Here's where it becomes for a moment as casual as a sitcom. So Frank and the rest of the party are there, and then they get on board the Charleston, and he's sailing across the bow in his own boat, and then he hears someone yell at him, Frank, come on board! Hey, buddy! And he looks, hey, yeah, good to and, see you. And he looks up, and it's a guy named Captain Hellett, who he knew a number of years before as a whaling captain. Back in his whaling days. Mm-hmm. And so, he's actually on a whaling ship. That was the one that he was flying the flag with. Yeah. And so he he gets on board, and 
he recognizes somebody else. He sees a guy who used to be a reporter for the Chronicle in San Francisco. And the guy walks up and he shakes his hands and he's like, man, I'm glad to see you here in Guam. And then someone comes up and says, why are you flying that American flag? Dude, Frank clearly got around, man. What are the chances? This is very strange. Yeah, this is really weird. Yeah. So this this tough customer walks up in his uh, officer's dress, military dress, and says, What right have you to fly this American flag mm-hmm. from thou ship? <laughs> thy, thy ship. That's how they spoke. And he, like, grins, uh, Frank grins and, you know, shrugs a little and He's says— a sly devil, Frank. Yeah, and says, well, I guess I have the right to have that flag up, for if I did not have the right, I would not have it there. Oh, snap. <laughs> I would have, whoa, okay. You, you being smart with me, boy? Right, he's pretty much he's saying, I do what I want, and the guy says, can you prove your right? Yeah, he sounds like a character from, like, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> right. And he says, yes, sir. And he pulls out his naturalization papers as a citizen of the U.S. And uh, the guy looks him over, and his tone completely changes. Yeah. And at that point, they're they're just bosom buddies. He uh, says, okay, Chicago. You're from Chicago, Illinois. Um, United States, 1888, 22nd of October. This is his birthday. Cook County, state of Illinois is what he says. Um, and at that point, he says, follow me, chum. Yeah, let's go meet the captain. And so they go to meet the captain who is thrilled to meet Frank. This is Captain Glass. And the officer hands Glass uh, Frank's papers. And then Glass looks him over and says, I'm glad to meet you. And then he says, look, your brother Joe told me that you had some lighters and some boats, and could you let me have some of those just to get some coal mm-hmm. on the steamer? Yep, and, I'll pay you. I'll and pay I'll you. pay you. Mm-hmm. I'll pay you. And this guy, Frank, says, you know what? You don't have to pay me. Uh, I'm the only U.S. citizen on the island, and it's my duty to give all aid I can because apparently – we're in a war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, so that happens. He gives him, he says he can use his boats. Frank goes back to his family. They have a nice meal. Um, and at that point, <laughs> a letter is delivered to Frank's home from the governor, a man by the name of Juan Marina. Um, signed, El Gobernador, this letter. And it says, translation is, if you offer any assistance to the American men of war, you will be executed tomorrow morning at the beach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Frank's like, yeah, right. <laughs> big, <laughs> big words, El Gubernador. So he reads the note, and he's pretty much giggling at it. He's like, <laughs> But his wife, you know, she, 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 she thinks it's a serious business, but Frank knows something that she does not know. Right. So uh, he, he said to his wife, who is beside herself with fear and sorrow, he says, don't worry, cheer up. Uh, if anything comes the worst, I'll have ships to take care of you and the kids. And he shows the note to his brother, and he said, look, I already promised Captain Glass the lighters. I'm going to send them anyway. And uh, Jose said, hey, watch out, man. Uh, So then he went to the Charleston again after lunch. Uh, He showed the letter to Captain Glass, and Captain Glass said— I got you. I got you. Yeah. He said, look, I'm going to have the island delivered before daylight. What they mean when they say island delivered is it's going to officially become uh, something under the control of the United States. Yep. 
Yep. And the way that all went down, uh, let's give you the quick and dirty. Um, he sent an envoy uh, to meet with the the governor, the man who very sinisterly threatened the life of our of our buddy Frank. So as promised, Glass decides to, he's he's ready to set this in motion. Um, so the next day, June twenty first, he sends an envoy, a guy by the name of Lieutenant William Brauenstreicher, Brown Browner Browner's Reuther. <laughs> He also says that he's not sure if he's spelling the name in right. In the letter, that's yeah. right. Yeah, very true. And I'm not sure I'm I'm saying it right, but that's I'm gonna I'm gonna commit to that. And they send a letter by way of the governor's people to uh, deliver to him, saying, "Come come on the ship, come hang with us. Let's chat on our turf on the ship." Mm-hmm. To which the governor, very civilly, at least the language in his mm-hmm. response, declines because he yeah. says it is against Spanish law to board a foreign vessel. And at the at the same time. Uh, this is still the 23rd of June. At the same time, uh, Frank has probably my favorite conversation in this story. He goes back on board the Charleston, and he's talking to Captain Glass. And Glass says, hey, Frank, uh, you're the only U.S. citizen on the island. Uh, and we, we got to go. So could you take care of the island? Yeah, because we're going to have this stitched up. Real quick, like, um, because after the governor refused, he said, come hang with me on the shore, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's, that's the best I'm going to do. So, um, Brauenstreicher, mm-hmm. Bra- no, it's Browner, Browner's Reuther. I'm, I'm going to say it like that. He goes with, the, with a few buddies and he meets up with the governor and he lets him know that, hey, we've got a pretty formidable gunship, you know, trained on your island and we're going to give you 30 minutes to deliberate with your people. And if you, uh, you know, do not surrender, we're going to shell you and take all you prisoner anyway. Mm-hmm. To which uh, the governor replies, uh, all right, give me a minute. Give me a minute. He goes and confers, returns with a sealed envelope. Mm-hmm. And what's in the sealed envelope? Well, the thing that's funny is he hands it to Brown's Reuther, Browner's Reuther. I'm never going to get it right. It's fine. Um, and it's addressed to Glass. Mm-hmm. But our boy, Mr. B, mm-hmm. opens it himself, to which the governor responds, whoa, 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 that's not for you, man. That's not diplomacy. Slow your roll. To which Mr. B responds, I represent him here. Back off. Yeah. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And so long story short, maybe a little too late, but this part of the story short, uh, the Spanish officials are taken into custody and they go aboard the boat and they're bound for the Philippines. Yeah, it's all very civil, too, because they're like, whoa, man, I, I don't have my toothbrush. I, I got out of the clothes on my back. And, and the, the Americans are like, yo, it's cool. We'll let you write to your family. We'll let them bring you a, a knapsack, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an overnight bag, and you'll, you'll be comfortable. You'll be taken care of. And, and, uh, and all we need you to do is get all of your troops to line up <laughs> and come aboard our ship to be our prisoners. And you know what? That's exactly how it went down. Yeah, not a uh, not a violent death at all. Nary a drop of blood was spilt. Right, just an awkward uh, salute that left both both sides of the conflict feeling as, as uh, lame as you know someone who had a high five that wasn't returned. If that's ever happened to you, and you just hold your hand up. But the story isn't over. It does get a little bit fuzzy here because the Charleston and Co set off for the Philippines. And General Glass says, hey, Frank, you're in charge because you're literally the only U.S. citizen here. Yep. To which Frank says, tight. I'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll make it work. I'll make it happen. And the problem is that he is not given any written appointment from Commander Glass. And there's— It's meant to be temporary, right? Right. It's just sort of like in the interim. It's like hold the spot. While we figure things out, yeah. So this makes him the first American governor of the island. But there's another character here, and it's not a a cut-and-dried story. The man we mentioned earlier, Jose Sixto, the paymaster— Oh, the paymaster. It's always—I knew there was a twist. Yeah, the paymaster still has a lot of control. And he is with the uh, former Spanish government— And now these two men are in kind of an informal fight for power in a stalemate. I missed this part entirely. Go on. Well, so after Glass leaves and after Frank becomes the governor, Sixto refuses to surrender the island's treasury to Frank. And there are no American sailors or Marines. There's nothing supporting his claim to power. Why wasn't he arrested along with all the other uh, officials? Guess he's just a... Just a uh, a nimble guy. I guess Weasley. so, yeah. But he, he just said, I'm going to keep paying any Spanish bureaucrats. I'm going to pay members of the militia. And this consolidates his influence over the island. That sounds sticky. And he was bad with money because he bankrupts the treasury. Law and order starts to break down. Uh, the native residents of Guam and uh, Filipinos that are living on the island begin fighting. There are riots. And for his part, Frank is doing his best because he says, look, we need to make some improvements on the island, specifically this road that was just in piss poor shape. And Sixto is like, well, I control the money and you shan't have a penny. Was he like the troll that guarded the bridge? <laughs> a little or, less or, or riddle the, based. Yeah. yeah. yeah, it's not, yeah. Um, yeah so this, this sounds like a real, uh, a real ship show. 
There we go. Hey, that's that's not son, bad. Son of a fish. Son of a fish yeah. in a ship show. We are building this vocabulary pretty Boy, well. And the mythology. Um, but so, you know, things happen. It, it, it gets, it's, it's obviously anytime you occupy a territory, it's going to be a little rough for a little while. But ultimately, after um, the war ended with the Treaty of Paris that was signed, um, Guam and the Philippines were purchased from Spain. For a relatively paltry $20 million, mm-hmm. um, and these lands were finalized as U.S. territories when the U.S. Senate ratified the treaty in um, 1899, February 6th to be precise. So this goes uh, th- this goes pretty quickly, right? It seems like from 1895, the Guam landing to uh, the Treaty of Paris, we're only looking at a few years, but – this had a massive effect on the U.S.'s geopolitical position and a pretty nasty effect on Spain because Spain uh, began to focus inward and the U.S. emerged from this war as a maybe not a superpower but a, a legitimate world power with possessions half a world away and a new stake in international Politics. Oh, like kind of like an empire or something? <laughs> hey, yes, exactly. Kind of like an empire. But luckily, no one in Guam was injured in that takeover. That is cool because there is actually a conspiracy theory. Let's just drop this here at the end. That, in fact, the U.S. did not get involved in the Spanish-American War for these humanitarian reasons we discussed earlier. What? Um, yeah, it was reasons of pure greed and to extend their world domination outward. And, you know, they ultimately succeeded in that, uh, at least in in a couple of small ways. Say it ain't so. Uh, You know, it's a theory. Yes, that is one of several theories. But you know what's not a theory? The idea that we hope you enjoyed this show. Whew, that's a, that's a, Clunky segue. No, no, man. You you got from A to B, and that's all a segue needs to accomplish. And here we are at B being the end of the show. Yeah, but I feel like we went circuitously through G for Guam. Mm. Oof. Oof. You are that's on fire, oof. my friend. So uh, thank you, as always, so much for uh, checking out today's episode. We want to thank, of course, super producer Casey Pegram, who has not, to our knowledge, ever invaded a Pacific nation. It's true. No, Casey is uh, is is a peaceful man, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a peaceful plan. Yes, uh, and we'd also like to thank, of course, uh, Christopher Hasiotis, Alex Williams, yep, the Ridiculous History crew, yep, and you, everybody, friends, neighbors, all of you, <laughs> countrymen. <laughs> lend, <laughs> you, you've already lent them to us, and we, for that, we will be forever grateful. Yes, and if you would like to continue adventuring with us throughout some of the strangest, silliest, and most ridiculous stories in human history, then join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, you can also find our community page, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, if, you, if you're if you wondering uh, why sometimes Noel and I have mentioned karaoke or Opryland, the answers you seek can be found there. And guess what? We finally made that Pinterest page we've been talking about all these years. That's not true. Just, just kidding. Okay. No, we're never, never going to do that. Never, it's not going to happen. It's, it's not, not gonna never going to never gonna do that ever. Um, but man, you guys, thanks for joining us. And uh, we hope that you'll join us for the next episode, wherein we talk about um, how Vermont 
was in fact a pretty radical place back in the day. I don't mean radical like in the skater parlance. Mm-hmm. I mean radical as in they had some pretty big ideas about liberty. And uh, they in fact were their own independent republic. Who knew? And the story doesn't end there. What the heck are we talking about? Tune in and find out. See ya. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.